Suicide is one obvious sign that things are not the way they're supposed to be in our world. For a growing number of our kids, the sad reality is that they come to believe that suicide is their only means of escape from a life that seems darker than the darkness of death. As parents and youth workers, we need to guide our kids into building their lives on the foundation of being known and loved by God, a foundation that will provide them with hope in the midst of difficulty. Today, I'm talking with counselor Julie Lowe about teens and suicide, recognizing the signs, and sharing gospel-centered hope on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, it's always a joy to welcome Julie Lowe to our podcast. Chris just informed me that uh, she is now with her fourth guest appearance on the Youth Culture Matters podcast, our most visited guest, and that indicates that she gives us a lot of value here. Julie, if you're not familiar with her, is a licensed professional counselor. She's also a faculty member at CCEF. Those of you unfamiliar with CCEF, that stands for the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, doing phenomenal work in terms of training biblical counselors. She's got extensive experience, I think 22 years. Is that right, Julie, or is it more than that, 22 years? That is right. Okay, so 22 years of counseling. God bless you, uh, you know, for that, because I'm sure you you see and hear a, a whole lot. Uh, She has extensive experience with marriage, women's issues, sexual abuse, body image issues, parenting, child maltreatment issues, and she's speaking on these things. It's everything we deal with here at CPYU, and those things that we think, as as we look at the stats on these, are just cascading. So she's also the author of several books. One of our favorites here that we promote and encourage parents to get is called Child Proof. Parenting by Faith, Not Formula, and she and her husband, Greg, have six children, serve as foster and adoptive parents, and what you won't read on any of her bios is that they have a menagerie of pets in their home. So don't be surprised, she said, if you hear one of the birds squawking when the Amazon guy comes down the driveway. But Julie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for having me. So what we want to talk about today is her latest book. It's actually a, a booklet that's been put out by New Growth Press. Anybody who's familiar with New Growth knows about their mini books, and these are wonderful little booklets that talk about some of the more difficult issues that we face in life, and counselors have written these. Julie's written a couple, and the latest one is titled Teens and Suicide, Recognizing the Signs and Sharing the Hope. And I I wish we, we lived in a, a day and age when we didn't have to talk about this, but the reality is that these issues are on the rise. After several years of being on the decline, when we think about the statistics, they're now on the rise again. So according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in 2019, suicide was the second leading cause of death among individuals between the ages of 10 and 34 and the fourth leading cause of death among individuals between the ages of 35 and 44. And when I look at the breakdown, and I won't go into all these stats, I mean, just to see 
that there were several hundred young people between the ages of 10 to 14 who took their own lives is very, very disheartening. I think if you look at some of the percentages uh, from the more recent National Youth Risk Behavior Survey, that's known as the YRBS, and they're talking about students in ninth through 12th grades in public and private schools throughout the United States, the percentage of those seriously considering attempting suicide in the 12 months prior to the survey was almost 20%, 18.8%. That's one out of five. And those who made a suicide plan during the 12 months before the survey, uh, almost 16%. Attempting suicide, 9%. And uh, made a suicide attempt that had to be treated by a doctor or nurse, that was 2.5%. So, I mean, any number there is way too high. And, Julie, I just want to ask you, you know, we're coming out of COVID. Uh, we're hearing a lot about issues related to anxiety. We were on, on a call today with a variety of youth workers, and we were asking them what they were facing in their local churches and their communities, anxiety, depression, and we know that's the pathway uh, for many kids to suicide. Are Those statistics there, I mean, are, do you think— does that accurate, accurately reflect what you're seeing? Do you think those have been on the rise as a result of COVID? Well, that's an interesting question if it's a result of COVID. It's certainly on the rise. And sometimes you hear a, a little bit of conflicting uh, input, but it's interesting. Uh, yes, I'm saying yes to, to agreeing with you. Just yesterday, I was doing some research and came across um, – I think it was the Surgeon General's advisory, a new advisory that came out and said that there was over 6,600 deaths by suicide among 10 to 24 year olds just in 2020. Um, and it was connecting it to technology. Um, so somehow that's connected to the COVID era, but it was connected specifically to the use of technology and cyberbullying and, and some of the issues we see that go along with depression, anxiety, all those issues that you can't take technology out of the mix, or I should say social media out of the mix of that. Um, so is it a result of COVID? Is it a result of a downward spiral that was already happening and COVID now added yes. another layer to that? Yeah, I think that's probably all true. Yeah, and that's what I was thinking, you know, that, that COVID just ramped everything up as kids were, yeah. you know, kids already struggling with, with issues were, were forced out of, you know, quote unquote normalcy in terms of social relationships and things like that, and the stresses that come with that. So I wondered about that. You know, I've always thought when you read those statistics, it's actually got to be higher than that, right? Because so much of it does not get reported or it gets reported as something else in an effort to spare those, you know, who are survivors, you know, reputation-wise or even, even the one who took his or her own life. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, in general, I think that is accurate. I wonder with suicide, if the possibility of hiding that or not documenting that, how hard or easy that would be. Um, I think it's just, especially when it comes to teens or young people, it's so much more shocking to us um, because you think here's a, here's a group who has everything to live for, who has a whole life to look forward to. Just I think again, yesterday I was doing some of this research that I saw two kids around the age of 10 in Utah committed suicide within the last 16 months, 10 years old. I just, 
know, I have an 11 year old son right now and it just turns my stomach thinking that he would be facing feelings and thoughts like that. And it speaks to a gravity of despair that is entering into our children's lives. Yeah. Well, you know, you counsel children and that raises an issue, a question in my mind when you talk about despair. Uh, you know, the, I, I think back, and this, you know, this is where, okay, the old guy's talking again, but I think back to my childhood. It was just, it was not without issues and it was not without conflict and it was not without my own brokenness and sin. But in many ways, relatively speaking, it was much more happy-go-lucky. I know you were telling us before we started to record, you're writing a book now on safety. I mean, so many of those issues, at least we weren't thinking about them being issues, and there wasn't the kind of stranger danger that we have now or the 24-7 news cycle. You know, and I, I think about what's happening around the world even today as we record this. Think about children in the Ukraine and, and, yeah. and globally as they watch the news. Are, have you seen over the course of time in your counseling practice that despair has, the level of despair has actually risen among kids at younger and younger ages? Yeah, absolutely. Probably a good word is angst, which of course leads to despair, but you're right. I mean, just think of what's happening in Ukraine, ISIS. I would have kids who would come in telling me how stressed they were about what was going on with ISIS a couple of years ago. And I remember thinking at your age, I didn't even watch the news. I had no clue what was going on globally, but kids do today, which is why you just can't untangle technology and media from this is the world is opened up to them and all of the the perils of the world is open up to kids in ways they used to be sheltered, appropriately sheltered from such things, and they're not any longer. Yeah. So so one of the very valuable aspects of this book is that you spend a lot of time in here listing many of the reasons why teens become vulnerable to suicide, and we might even say children under the teen years, you know, tweens and, and even below, as you said there, with, with kids, you know, 10 years old. As you talk, as we, you know, and I want to work through that as we talk about that. Something you just said made me think about the conversation we had earlier with the youth workers that two or three of them they actually nuanced the issue of angst and anxiety and talked about performance anxiety. You know, I know we've heard that term before, but that that really seems to be on the rise. And you know, performance maybe pressures from parents, pressures from you know, peers uh, to perform a certain way, the school system, certainly if you're wrapped up in a in a high achieving place. And they even brought up performance anxiety among kids who feel that they have to measure up to a certain standard as followers of Jesus Christ that they can't meet, which was a new thing we had not heard. That was very interesting to hear that. Um, can, can, can you speak to that? I mean, is that performance anxiety? I know that's one particular type. Uh, have you seen that actually more and more as well? Well, that would be interesting to know what the the youth leaders, how the kids are articulating that. What would stand out to me or what would make sense about that is we're living in an increasingly anti-Christian culture. And so is the anxiety that I am so, um, I'm so different. I'm so uh, targeted as a Christian that I feel the anxiety of, of maintaining that status, that pressure. So that is that a actual cultural 
issue that's happening as a result of the kind of world our kids are growing up in and that they're being parented and taught so polar opposite of what life and reality in our day and age is. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, here's what I'd love to do. I'd love to kind of walk through your different reasons that teenagers are vulnerable to suicide. And as we do that, I I really want to push the people who are listening to not only listen carefully to this, but get this little book, Teens and Suicide, Recognizing the Science and Sharing Hope, which is published by New Growth Press. And if you're the parent of a preschooler or an elementary age student, I mean, this is a great time to to look at this and read this because it'll give you it'll give you the ability to maybe see things you might not see otherwise. And actually, let, let me ask you a question about that because, you know, when a student takes their life, a lot of times I hear people talking to the parents or a student, a student makes an attempt on their life. They'll talk to the parents and the you know, parents will say, I, I didn't see this coming. Yeah, I just didn't see this coming. Obviously, we need to know, know the signs. We'll get to that too. But is it is it I I have this feeling that it's sort of like life in the fishbowl, you know, that or the frog in the kettle that you don't actually see it happening as clearly when it's right under your nose sometimes. Yeah. 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 Just speak to that for a minute, because this is why I think it's important for parents of younger folks to read this. Yeah, I mean, one of my mantras is we need to be experts at knowing our own kids, because when we do, then that, that frog in the kettle, we notice something happening because we notice the, the things that seem to be minor changes aren't minor because we know our kids well. We're seeing something that's off or different. And it is it is that slow progression and things seem off, but our life is busy and the child seems stable or normal, or you asked a question about how they're doing and they gave you the answer you wanted. And so we become numb to all the cues that something is amiss. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of these uh, things that make teens vulnerable, these factors that make teens vulnerable to suicide. I'll, I'll just let you talk about some of them here. All right. Are you you're going to read them? Okay, I'll do that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and it's always funny to do this because I never know if somebody has the book right in front of them because I've had this happen before. But let me read them and I'll have you comment. That's a great that's a great way to do this. So uh, how about here's the first one. You have painful life events and problems. Right. So, I mean, that's what we typically think of when we think of somebody who struggles with depression or despair, that they come from broken homes, from abusive backgrounds, disruption, death, grief, you know, the, the huge life events that go unprocessed or lack the support to walk alongside them. Um, so those, those are things that make sense to us. And most of the time, people are hopefully intervening and walking alongside young people, knowing that they need the help and support. Um, but the brokenness in the family and their home environment, not having a place that feels like home and a loving home at that is, is key. Yeah. And I think we've talked in the past about adverse childhood experiences, you know, those things that are identified yeah. with the acronym ACEs. Yeah. And that's where, you know, when you when you read that and you learn about that, and, and there's some great information out there on that that's, that's, that's a quick read. I know I've posted some things on our site about that. That's where I think, you know, the youth workers who are listening, if you can really be tuned into that, 
the greater the number of those situations that exist in a child's life, perhaps the greater the risk or the, the, the chance that the risk is going to be greater for a young person to move into that. Yeah, and if I can comment on that for a minute, I think, too, um, a child, going back to the greater the number, the reason the greater the number is I also think it does something to a child where they begin to believe my life is destined to have bad things happen. My, my life is destined to be bad. And so there's this pervasiveness that enters in of discouragement um, or despair that this is the way it's going to be. And, you know, it's kind of the idea of that little black cloud hanging over their head. And so the more adverse the, the issues are from bullying to abuse, to neglect, to divorce, to whatever it might be, the greater the sense that there's something wrong with them internally. Mm. The second uh, factor that you list here is exposure to suicide. You just mentioned uh, a story about two young young kids uh, in Utah, I think you said, and, and the cluster effect, you know, and we've read about that periodically over the years in terms of different communities, high schools, middle schools, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really known out in Silicon Valley of having that effect. And that goes to some of the performance, the high pressure, high performance environments that kids can grow up in um, where they just can't take the pressure anymore. And it is a really interesting, the cluster phenomenon. It's really interesting how um, how it works, how it both gives a, a way of escape but to some, it even glorifies it because kids watch when, when a suicide happens, they watch how everybody's responding to the suicide and they watch how that person is memorialized, how their name shows up all over the place. And inadvertently, a child who's feeling unknown, unloved, unwanted looks at that and thinks, oh, well, maybe if I commit suicide, I'll be remembered this way too. People will miss me now. People will love me. Um, I'll have the same reaction. And so there's all these interesting dynamics from uh, the way people, the way it could be glamorized in the view of a child to the way it gives an escape or an out um, to just the, the patterns that flow when, when one child does it, another will tend to do it um, or even the encouraging each other to do it. There's just horrific stories yeah. that I've heard of people being online and kids kind of daring each other, prompting each other, saying, yeah, your life is worthless. You should consider doing it. Let's talk about ways you can do it. Just the horrific ways teens provoke each other to suicide. Mm. And boy, that that whole online world and social media adds a whole nother perspective to that in terms of mm you know, the encouragement and the dares and that sort of thing. And so many of our kids are desensitized even to violence that they would, would I hate to say it this way, but get a, get a kick, get a charge out of yeah. encouraging someone to do that. This is so good. Hey, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking to Julie about this question. What makes teens vulnerable to suicide? We're talking about her new booklet from New Growth Press, Teens and Suicide, Recognizing the Signs and Sharing Hope. If you enjoy listening to Youth Culture Matters and would like to support the ongoing efforts of this ministry, you can do so by visiting cpyu.org giving to make a donation. Your prayers and financial support make this podcast possible.
about the issue of how kids become so vulnerable to suicide. We mentioned already in your little booklet, you've talked about painful life events and problems, and then also exposure to suicide. What about peer influence? Yeah, so I began to touch on that where uh, just the stories are unlimited in the news from you know, girlfriends who are provoking the, a boy to, to commit suicide to online chat rooms where this stuff flourishes. I've heard multiple stories of even those who work in ministries who go into online chat rooms to actually try to rescue kids from them. So I've, I've heard stories, personal stories of adults who've been in the online chat rooms and have watched one child encouraging another child to feel life is worthless, to consider suicide as an option. And this adult speaking in and trying to get the, the teen out of the chat room to have a private chat to, to give them hope. And that's some of the work of, I think even focus on the families doing some of this work where they send people into some of those chat rooms to do that. Um, because that is the answer. I'm, I'm jumping to what I talk about in, in the answer is that kids need relationship. They need somebody to show them that there is a way. But here's the nature of online and peers, influencing peers, that the more you take away any godly, loving authority, um, it is peers educating peers, peers raising peers is what I say in today's modern age, because they're online incessantly uh, 24 hours a day. So any loving adult guidance is being pushed out of their life and the peer voice is becoming far bigger and far greater. Mm. And it's not a positive voice. Yeah. And this is where we really want to encourage our kids to choose good friends. You know, you mentioned in the book, Proverbs thirteen twenty that, man, we, we lean into that a lot here when we talk about peer pressure. You know, he who walks with a wise grows wise or becomes wise but a companion of fools will suffer harm. And, you know, there's that there's that old, I don't know who originally said it, it's attributed to Will Smith, that if you look at your five best friends, that's who you are. Mm. You know, look around at your five best friends, that's who you are, and is that really who we're, who we're called to be? You also talk about the influence of teen culture, you know, how things are glamorized. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pop culture, teen culture, I mean... Youth is glamorized and age is mocked. And we see that from, actually, it's even shocking how young kids are getting that message in cartoons today. Um, so just the, the attitude that everybody wants to be like a teen, the teen culture and the teen uh, look and mentality is what is to be desired uh, and not, not age or wisdom or maturity. Hmm. Now, you, you alluded to this already, but the influence of social media and just uh, let me hear you say something about comparison, because that's such a big thing, you know, as kids are trying to find their identity. I remember, yeah, you know, the, the middle school or in my case, it was the junior high. We called it a junior high hallway, the junior high uh, place, the cafeteria. That was like an identity fitting room. We think about it that way. Now, social media has become that. And I can see where failure to measure up or, or belief that you're not measuring up could really send you over the edge. Yeah, I just in the last year wrote a blog for CCF called The Danger of Comparison and how we turn each other into rivals rather than relationships and friends people rather than people that are iron sharpening iron they become rivals and enemies um, and we begin to 
struggle with jealousy or bitterness or resentment or competitiveness. And that's what social media does. It kind of brings out the worst of us. It doesn't, doesn't make us go on and say, oh, I feel so thankful for, for Walt or Chris or Julie. Look how, look how nice their vacation was. It's full of jealousy and, oh, I wish I could be like that. And maybe I need to strive to be like that. And we're, we're fostering that. We're actively nurturing that in our young people to go on social media and to present their world in a way that makes others, what, covet you. Yeah. Um, yeah. With no wisdom on, on how to think those things through. So again, I think the comparison is people become our rivals uh, in our mind rather than healthy relationships. You know, as you describe that, we're not just talking about kids there. I mean, this is epidemic among adults as well. And it's not a male problem or a female problem. It's a human problem. Yes. And I know even in our churches where you know, we have this flesh and blood community and we greet each other with smiles, you know, maybe the two or three times we're together during the week at the other times that we're not together and we're, you know, flipping through Instagram, scrolling through or looking at Facebook or whatever it is. Like you said, it's that comparison. And when we're working to put ourselves in our best light, it isn't even really our best light. It's a false light. You know, it's a social presence or a mask. And we curate ourselves to look really, really great and sort of stay ahead at the pack, of the pack. And I would guess this really contributes to a lot of the anxiety and the depression and the breakdown of, of many adults in the church. Yeah, years ago, I mean, you know, I speak on body image and, and things like that. Years ago, they started introducing uh, computer programming and regenerating so that models on um, magazines and places weren't even real people, uh, or they would take human parts from the best of women and they would piece together this, this model, young people and women, adults and young people alike would look at these models and think, this is what I need to be like, not even knowing this isn't a human that we're now looking at. And we've taken that same principle and we've applied that in our social media accounts and Twitter and Facebooks, where we can recreate any life or presentation we want. So I'm not recreating my face or my body, but I am recreating my life. I am piecing together and imaging it the way I want the world to see it. And it's not reality. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not authentic, uh, even. The last factor that you mentioned here that make teenagers vulnerable to suicide is what you call weakened influence of parents and pastors. I'd like to hear you talk about that and specifically you know, are there some ways that those of us who are working in youth ministry might actually be contributing to this uh, just by overlooking certain things that maybe we should be doing or we should be teaching or the way that we should be relating to young people? Yeah, so one of the ways I think about this, um, and again, there are, all these things are tied together, but with uh, the access of technology, kids now have access to each other all the time. So that's where I see the weakening of loving adult influence, particularly parental influence. Um, but with the, the going out of parental influence is the going out of a lot of adult influence, because again, the ability for peers to access peers all the time and to be their source of wisdom and information is just constant. So that means that it is harder to win a voice in a student's life today for a youth leader, for a pastor, for a parent. 
unless you are actively fighting it and pursuing it. And we are far too reactive in our kids' lives, whether it's in ministry or in parenting. We're reactive rather than proactive. And I'm arguing that if you are reactive, you've already lost your kids or are losing them. We need to be proactively pressing in and finding reasons to have a relationship and pursuing them when they don't want to be pursued. And, you know, I joke in our home, we call it forced family fun, where I make them do things with me in the hopes that, well, they'll enjoy it by the end of it, but I have to put up with a whole lot of grumbling to get there. But it's to say, you are valuable, you are worth spending time with. And parents too easily, and I'm sure this is true in ministry, we too easily give up on kids and just wipe our hands and say, well, they don't want to talk to me or, well, they don't want to have anything to do with me. So yeah, I'll just enter into their online social media accounts, which isn't bad. We've got to enter their worlds, right? But nothing, nothing can substitute relationship. Hmm. I'm sure in your counseling practice, you've had many, many times when you're working with a young person and maybe it gets to the point or maybe it's been happening where the parents are involved or this is where you bring the parents in, a mom or dad or both, and you turn to the parents and you offer some correctives. What would be some of the correctives? I know you've mentioned some here, but some that you've communicated in your counseling practice to parents who it's gotten to it's gotten to a bad point. There needs to be intervention. You're you're counseling now, and you turn to them and you say, "Here's what I want to suggest that you do. Suggest strongly." Oh well, it could depend on the issue. Yeah, but, I'm sure. But, Maybe it's an unfair question, but I'm just curious. <laughs> you know, in general. Well, yeah, and in general, it is relationship. It's cutting down on it's cutting down on technology and social media. And I hate saying that because it always sounds like I'm so anti these things, but. We just don't get the gravity of it. I mean, the research out there um, is all saying it and, and we're choosing to ignore it. But I need, we need to put down the devices ourselves. We need to not be carrying our cell phones around. We need to be willing to sit in front of our kids and play a card game that seems so archaic to the world, but is so fruitful to just sit and talk and to take them out for coffee or to go for a hike or to go for a walk. There are, get them out of the house and actually live life with them, do cooking together, do something. So I can, I can bring up 20 different ideas that any teenager will put down or say is dumb or no way. But I found over and over again, when a parent is willing to push and do it with a student or a son or daughter, it becomes one of those special times that kids are really thankful for. They will fight you on it. They'll tell their friends it's stupid and they hate doing it. And they end up feeling close to their parents as a result. Um, so a non-negotiable is saying, spend time with your children. Please do something proactive with them and be willing to be the bad parent, the only parent in the entire world who makes their child put their cell phone down at eight o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night or makes them keep it in their room or won't let them get a cell phone until a certain time period. Be that parent um, and not just be that parent, but explain why. Yeah. And, and so we say to our kids all the time, guys, we love you. Like, we don't wanna punish you. We love you too much to let this rule your life or we get three hours a night with you. Why would I want you to spend it on a computer? I want to spend it with you. So you're giving context to why you have the rules you do. Mm. Yeah, being able to explain that is good. And one of the key themes in your book here is that we need to be redemptive guides. 
And I think this is so important. You know, you're talking about being proactive rather than reactive. The reactive part sometimes comes when it relates to suicide. Until, you know, we're, we're in a crisis, right? So now we're going to do something. But I'm thinking about preventing a crisis as well. That's the proactive, the preventive part of it. You, you go through this and talk about some of the reasons for this, which we'll get to. But describe exactly what you mean by being a redemptive guide. Yeah, the, one of the passages I love most is Deuteronomy 6. I probably say it and quote it way too much. But just this idea that I am walking through life with my kids and I am talking about the things of the Lord and trying to make sense and trying to woo them to the Lord, not not give them a bunch of rules and do's and don'ts, but look how good God is. Look how worthy he is of following and look how much sense this makes. So hard topics, whether it's sex or sexuality or gender or suicide, whatever it is, I'm willing to bring up the hard topics and just be somebody who'll talk to them about it. And that's a redemptive guide. It's, it's somebody who's taking the brokenness they see all around them and, and pointing them to the Lord who redeems it and has something to say about it. And I'm not just doing it once in a while or when a problem comes up, I'm setting a standard, a pattern to be that for our kids. So the hope is when they are really struggling it won't feel like a leap to come to us. It'll still be hard. It's hard for kids to come to their parents. But if they've consistently heard me say, I love you and I care about this and I know these are issues you face, it's going to be a whole lot easier for them to turn to somebody trustworthy, to a youth group leader, to anybody, knowing they get it and they understand it's hard. Yeah, as you talked earlier about a lot of the reasons why kids would would choose to walk down this path or you know, start to have to deal with anxiety or, or cave into depression, you know, starting to deal with that. A lot of what you've mentioned, they're, they're the, the cultural realities, you know, and even the narrative on the value of life or how life is devalued and where we find our identity or we don't find our identity. We always say here, you know, culture is speaking to our kids. Culture is doing Deuteronomy 6, but not with a gospel message, right? It's yep. that 24-7 presence and, and catechesis and education of kids, it, once we realize that, you know, that should wake us up from any sort of ignorance or laziness that we have and realize that if culture speaking to my kids 24-7, I have to take every opportunity I can to issue correctives and speak to my kids in the same way. So, yeah, that's really good, just giving them reasons for hope. And so, Here's one of the great, beautiful things about this booklet. You talk about 10 reasons for, for hope. And, and I'm thinking to myself, this is when I read this, I'm thinking, you know, and you're not, you're not suggesting, you know, list these reasons when a kid's in crisis. This has to happen from the time a child emerges from the womb because this is, this is what builds resilience and a proper perspective to be able to deal with the 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 you know obvious difficulties that are bound to come we all experience those in our lives so i'm going to walk you through these let me let me list them and then go ahead and respond um and i love this this is great for an adult as well uh, you are not alone you're not alone that's your first one yeah so just god's presence this pervading presence right and he's he, he's invisible and sometimes we can feel that being invisible means he's absent or silent. 
And so to speak in ways that we help them realize, you know, you walk out this door in the morning, God walks out with you. You get on that bus, you get in that car, you go in that lunchroom, the Lord goes with you. He is ever present. And, you know, you and I have to talk about that in compelling ways. We can't just say it. We've actually got to live it out and believe it for ourselves. Yeah. I love what you write here under that, you know, peers may leave them. Families may fail them, but there is a very real personal God who meets them in their experiences, no matter how dark and horrible they are. And then uh, you cite scripture passages as well that we can sit and and read to our kids, you know, in a preventive way or even even when they're in crisis. Uh, you also say we need to give them a reason for hope by instilling them in in them, instilling in them a sense of their value. Mm-hmm. Right. Value and worth inherently just comes from God. I mean, one of my favorite books is uh, Max Licato's book, You Are Special, with the Wemmicks and these little wooden people. And he talks about putting stars and dots on each other. And that value comes only from the creator. Um, that who, who are anybody else to give their stars or dots? Um, and the more we find value and confidence in just the fact we were made by God and created in his image, the more freedom we have to be who we are. And instilling that, that's a great example of instilling it very early in our children. Mm. You follow up that with, uh, you are greatly loved. Right. So speaking, here's where the way we speak so matters. Um, I don't want to just say that. I want to speak in ways kids feel that, that you are loved, that you are precious, that even quoting scripture and doing it not in cliche, weird ways that parents can do for their kids, but quoting it in ways where God talks about us being the apple of his eye and, and how much he values us and, and why that's why I value you. I value you, honey, not because you perform well in school. I value you because God made you this way. And this is who you are and you're worth being valued for no other reason, but God wired you that way. Mm. I just think to go back to, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, the creation narrative, just to see and mm-hmm. unpack what that means to be made in the image of God, and then even to go further and, and get into the New Testament and think about the cross and what Christ did for us, and now, you know, as adopted daughters and adopted sons, the value that that gives us and the fact that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. It's such a beautiful thing. This is so helpful. Uh, we're going to take a break. It sounds like the Amazon guy came down the street. I heard that. <laughs> I love it. This is great. This is what, this, we, we love this when we talk to you. Uh, but we'll take a break. We'll come back, and we'll, we'll finish up with Julie Lowe. I often hear grandparents say how glad they are that they don't have to raise kids in today's world. While these comments might not be very encouraging to those of us who are parents or who are doing youth ministry with kids today, they do recognize the fact that there are lots of confusing and dangerous cultural realities that kids need to navigate if they are going to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. In an effort to provide parents and youth workers with an easy-to-use tool designed to help kids find their way through the choices they face in today's world, I've written a new little book, that can be used individually or in small groups, A Student's Guide to Navigating Culture. It's the shortest book I've ever written, but it's the one I believe will have the greatest impact in terms of discipling the emerging generations. If you want to teach your kids how to live in today's culture while following God's will and way, 
Check out this new little book, A Student's Guide to Navigating Culture. You can learn more and order copies at cpyu.org. Well, we've been talking to our friend Julie Lowe, who is a counselor, a biblical counselor. We've mentioned CCEF, where she's on the faculty, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. And we will include in the, in the episode notes for this, if you go to our website, cpyu.org, under the player for this particular episode, we'll include links to CCEF, we'll include links to Julie's books. And Julie, I'm trying to remember, you, do you have a website? Is there a website no. you have? Okay, all right. No. Well, we can find you through CCEF, so we'll point people there. And and I do want to mention, you know, this is a this is a booklet that's really great to get in the hands of everybody. If you're a pastor or you're a youth pastor, youth worker, you know, these are the kinds of books that you can go on the site for New Growth Press, and we'll include a link for that. And order, you know, if you've got 30, 30 families, order 30 to 40 copies of this. You know, give them out, put the extras in Iraq. We have this in our church that uh, Lisa and I are members of. And, you know, New Growth has so many titles in this uh, series of little booklets that are so incredibly helpful. And you'll want to get this Teens and Suicide, Recognizing the Science and Sharing Hope by Julie in the Hands of Parents. We were talking through all the reasons for hope. And I want to just continue to go through those and then turn the corner as we finish up and hear some recommendations from you about how to respond when a young person is in crisis, a family is in crisis. But uh, you talk about telling your teenagers, giving them hope by saying they can find help. Yeah, so help should always be available to our kids and identifying, um, identifying who are the safe people, who are the people you can always go to. So it's hard as a parent to think my kids wouldn't feel comfortable with me, but I always have to offer the option of saying, listen, if you're afraid of talking to dad or I, here's three people we would always want you to feel comfortable going to. They'll talk to you. They'll encourage you. Their counsel is trustworthy. Please go to them. If you're hurting, if you're in trouble, if you think you've done something that you're scared to tell us. So even just giving other options to our kids and we're, we're broadening their world to say, uh, we want to surround our kids with mature, wise counsel. I don't have to be the only one speaking into my child's life. And as a matter of fact, it is wonderful to get them to want to go to any adult who's going to give them good input. Yeah, that is that is great advice. And one of the things we encourage people to do, we did this, Lisa and I did this in our family, is we made sure that our dear, close, trusted Christian friends and, and we're not talking about dozens of people here. We're talking about a couple of couples who we're very close to. We would involve them in our kids' lives. They had children as well. We would spend a lot of time together. They poured into our children's lives. Our kids became friends with them. They became friends with our kids. And there were times, as you've said, where our kids, we've you know, one or two of the kids, were in a difficult situation, and they actually felt more comfortable going not to us, but to one of these couples. And we had set the table for that by not only building those relationships, but actually, like you just said, telling our kids, please do that. And we knew. I mean, we might sit there and there might be silence, you know, not knowing what's happening or what's being said. But we knew that what was the counsel that was being given and the guidance that was being given was that which we would trust because it would be the same 
that we would give. So that's a, that's a great, great recommendation. Uh, your life has purpose. Yeah, so here's where it's outward and forward focused, right? That life is bigger than what's happening right now. So hard things, bullying, online cyberbullying, hard things could be going on right now that makes life feel insurmountable. Like I can never get by this and or past this. And we want to keep saying your life has a greater meaning. There's Jeremiah 29, 11, that God knows the plans he has that they're for good and not for harm, for a future and a hope. So there's this forward focus that God knows he's taking even the hard things now and using them for good in your life. And we just got to keep speaking that truth to them. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk for a minute about emotions, because one of the recommendations you give here is to talk to kids and say, you will not always feel this way. And one of the realities of life in today's world for our kids is they're being encouraged to live uh listen hard to their feelings, live out of their feelings. You know, they be, their feelings become the authority in life. They're living intuitionally and, and they're encouraged, you know, just be authentic to yourself. And I always talk about, you know, my dad telling me when I was a teenager, you're way too emotional, you know, and, and I'm like, what, why, why are you trying to squash that? I mean, I know God made my emotions, but I was way too emotional. And his constant reminder of that to me really, reset me in some good ways to the point where I value my emotions, but I don't, I don't trust them. And I think especially when you're young, you think that whatever difficulty you're facing is eternal. You know, there's no way I'm ever going to break out of this. It's just earth shattering. So speak about that. You'll, you won't always feel this way. Yeah. Well, so feelings, uh, interpret or become reality. It's a good question, which it does, but they be for kids, especially their feelings are their reality instead of saying, no, my feelings are subjective. Truth is reality. So um, a simple way of saying this is how do I crucify my emotions to the promises of God's word to what is true? I like that. So it's or even there are times we need to crucify our emotions to what's true, but there are times we just need to yield our emotions. So I can say, of course you feel this way. Of course, this is hard right now, but what's true and what's true needs to come first. And your emotions need to be subject to what's true, what reality is. Reality says your life's not over. This is embarrassing. You're humiliated. This is a painful experience. True. That's true. But reality says your life is not over, that you can get through this, that this won't last forever. Your feelings tell you it will. And so you're helping them see feelings can have validity. They just can't have ultimate say and control. Yeah. And, and you, you know, you recognize there as you were talking about that, how difficult these things are. But then you go on to say, look, we can encourage our kids and give them hope by saying there's a good way forward, even when life is hard. God doesn't leave us to figure life out on our own. So I, yeah, talk about the place of, uh, of you know, suffering in our Christian growth and, and our Christian lives, our sanctification, you know, being conformed to the image of Christ. Do you speak about those things to kids, you know, give them a th- good theology of suffering, which I think we have failed to do many times in yeah. the church? Yeah, and I think it's getting worse because I think— with the the age of entitlement, it's I'm entitled to good. I'm entitled to never have hard. Um, And I've been using the language of hard a lot lately. Like life is hard. 
um, God gives us hard. We should expect hard and we shouldn't expect God to get us out of the hard. We should expect him to, to come with us into the hard. And so there's a, there's a shift of mentality where as believers, we need to believe that yes, this world and this life will be hard. And my goal isn't to ask God to rescue me from the hard. My goal is to invite the Lord into the hard and for him to do something good in the hard. And as adults, we're not doing that. So how in the world would I expect my kids to have that mentality if I am not embracing that mentality to say, yeah, we, we sometimes choose even what's hard because that's what love does. That's what ministry does. You, you move into the hard places, you move into suffering. And all over scripture, it tells us expect to suffer. Yet somehow we're raising a generation that presumes the exact opposite. So there's something we're missing in the way we talk about it. And I think it's probably the way we talk about our own hard stuff first and what we model to kids. Here's another one you write about that, boy, is this ever timely, right? I mean, social media and advertising and the emphasis we put on what we look like, body image, you know, which you mentioned earlier. You are more than your outward appearance. Boy, that one, I, I don't think we can repeat that enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And actually hearing you read it like that, I just think, yeah, I love that I said it that way because we, we reduce ourselves to a shell. Um, and, you know, scripture talks about outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. There's, there's life in this corpse that is being renewed over and over. And we put so much emphasis and again, social media takes it up 20 more times, but so much emphasis on the outward and so little on the inward. Yeah. And, and that segues well into your, your ninth suggestion here, a way to give hope is, is to tell your kids that God is up to good in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I want them to see, um, and you know, we're, we're a foster adoptive family. So we, we have kids that have stories and have hard things in their life. And to be able to say not one piece of that is getting wasted, but God is up to something really good in that. And it doesn't dismiss what's hard. It says, you've got such a good God that he can take even the hard moments and do something amazing with it. And I mean, it just, that's the idea of wooing our kids to the Lord. Like, look how good this person is. Look what he can do. Look what he's capable of. Look how he can take even things that feel hopeless and do something amazing with them. And the language we speak, the way we speak about God will inspire our kids or drive them away from him. We've got to do a better job of that. Yeah. And then finally, you mentioned uh, you will not be put to shame. Um, so you think of suicide and a lot of reasons kids get to that place is something shameful's happened or the way they've been socially shamed. And, and again, that's why I like that language that, that God redeems, God builds up, God brings to light. Um, what does Psalm say? Brings, uh, his righteousness shall shine like the dawn, his justice of the cause, like the noonday sun, that God will deliver us from our shame and embarrassment um, and that he he works for good in their life so it's just all these promises again we keep pouring on our children to give them hope yeah and and that's the beauty of the cross you know as we enter into coming up on the easter season when we when we think uh 
you know, more regularly, I think, just because of the season about, about the cross and the message of the cross, you know, that Christ bore our sin and bore our shame, took it all to the cross is a lesson we need to, to teach our kids. So let's, uh, let's turn the corner and finish up. So, you know, I, I, I'm a youth pastor. I'm a parent. I've got uh, a young person in my home or a young person in my youth group. Mom and dad come to me. Hey, we're in crisis as, you know, as a youth pastor, mom and dad come to me. We're in crisis here. Uh, our, our, we, we discovered that a suicide note or, or we, we had some conversations about intent what do we do now? Give us some intervention strategies. Well, um, this, the most profound one is what that child needs to hear is I care about you. I love you and I care about you. And that needs to be repeated over and over and over again. Nothing can be more importantly said in those moments. The second then is just the very practical where do we go to for help? Is counseling needed? Is serious intervention needed? Is is our child really unsafe? Do we need to uh, do we need them have them placed somewhere where they'll be safe? So you're you're evaluating risk and safety too, um, but you want to you want to tell them they are loved and they are cared for and they are heard and you are with them and that you take this seriously and that you want to help them. You're inviting the uh, the young person to tell you what ways will you accept help and do you want help? Um, because that's an open invitation and an easy door to go through right away. You want to find out who are you willing to talk to? Who can I take you to talk to? If they fight it, you can say, well, I love you and I really want you to do this and I'm going to take you kicking and screaming because I love you too much to, to not do this for you. Um, but I do want your input. I do care who you would like to talk to. Let's work together. So I'm doing everything to, to get the team to want to want help. But I also know I've got to see clearly when a young person isn't seeing clearly. So what's tricky about it is some kids are just putting a cry out. They're saying, hey, I'm hurting so much. I'm thinking about this and I need somebody to talk to. And some kids are well beyond the thinking about it. And they're in the planning stage and greater intervention is needed. So I think that's when you always want to invite in a youth pastor, a pastor, a counselor, somebody that has extra eyes on the situation to help you evaluate what level of intervention is needed at this time. Yeah, I think, you know, the benefit for us living so close to Philadelphia, you know, me having been raised there, we're actually close to you. So I know when we get calls out here or we run into people out here, you know, immediately we're going, okay. Uh, CCEF, Julie Lowe, let's call Diane Langberg. You know, we've got these right. great counseling resources that we really trust that have been vetted well, trained well. Uh, we know they're going to, you know, lead families and lead individuals in the right direction. But for those who don't, aren't aware of what those resources would be near where they are, what would you say about how to choose a good counselor? What would you recommend? Uh, well, you want one who is going to think well about giving hope to kids, um, hopefully one who's a strong believer, who thinks well about what gives hope and identity and value, one that is going to really connect with your young person, so somebody who is good with young people and meets them where they're at and engages well. 
and somebody who's hopefully dealt with the issues enough that they know how to guide you through um, when more serious interventions needed and when counseling isn't working and another step needs to be taken. As a professional or as a counselor, I always need to be humble enough to say, I don't think I'm enough right now, or I may not be the right person right now. Um, because love says what's going to be best for the child. Yeah, I, and I like that. And, and you know, I'm thinking back, especially to my early years in youth ministry, where, and I, and I think this is typical of many who are new in ministry, that, you know, you have a situation like this comes to you and you're thinking, you know, I can deal with this. And as you get older and you become wiser, you realize, mm, no, no, I need, like you just said, I have to be humble enough. There has to be enough humility to, you know, find someone and pass this on. So I would say to youth workers, and we recommend this all the time, you know, you've heard Julie speak today. We know this is an issue. We know that anxiety and depression and, you know, just the stresses, uh, stressors of life are increasing, it seems. Uh, and, and because of that, we, we don't want to wait till the shoe drops or the phone rings or there's a knock on the front door. We want to know who to send people to right now. So my recommendation is always, you know, know what the issues are that your kids may face. And it's pro probably just a matter of time. It's not if, but when. And then have a list at arm's length of referrals that you can call in a moment to get a family in crisis the kind of help that they need. Julie, this has been so good. I want to... Uh, I want to finish up. I just want to read one of the sentences you wrote, and, and it, it comes back to something you've mentioned several times here, and that is the importance of relationships. You said quality relationships with parents and godly adults are crucial to our teens' well-being. Be aware, parents, be aware of how much time you're actively engaging your kids versus keeping them happily occupied. One fosters intimacy the other fosters detachment. And I just thought that that is a just a brilliant statement there that can can redirect all of us and force us to evaluate, you know, how we're spending time with our kids. So, um, Julie, thanks so much for this. Thanks for this booklet. Uh, any final words? Oh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. The words that you spoke to. Yeah, as always, it is really uh, is really helpful. Uh, to, to talk to you. It's not always fun because we talk about difficult issues, you know, but it, it really is helpful and it's enjoyable. Uh, we really appreciate your, wis your wisdom and, and sharing that with us. So for those who are listening, we'll remind you, go to the uh, episode player for this particular episode of Youth Culture Matters at cpyu.org. As you scroll down under the player, you'll see that Chris Wagner, who produces this, has put uh, links to all, everything that's been mentioned here. We'll link to all of Julie's books, uh, any other resources that she mentioned. We'll make sure you can get easy access to them. And as always, we ask you to, with the podcast, wherever you're listening to it, give us a good review, share it with people. And, you know, that helps us, helps us grow the reach of our podcast. So thanks so much for listening. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.